Being disabled or having a chronic illness can feel like you're moving forward in reverse. I'm your host, Scott Martin. Join me and my new friends from this underrepresented community as we talk about disrupting the status quo and creating change within the world and within ourselves. Hey, life's a road trip. Hop in. Let's turn on some tunes and go. In the passenger seat of managing the radio on our road trip today is Becky Kakula. Becky is a TEDx international motivational speaker and advocate for inclusion. After receiving a college degree, Becky worked for a decade in the entertainment and news media industries. Currently, she's working with corporations to help advance disability inclusion and equality. She proudly identifies as part of the disability community and has spoken at over 400 venues, such as companies, government agencies, and schools. Hi, Becky. Hello. What I want to touch on first was what's up with your ties to Wisconsin? Uh, I caught a uh, interview f- with you on WTMJ out of Milwaukee and TEDx is associated with UW Milwaukee. So are you and or Ryan Badgers? Ryan, my husband actually went to University of Wisconsin Whitewater, uh-huh. but his sisters, go. two of his sisters went to UW Madison and it runs in the blood to okay. be a Badgers right. fan, but also a Packers fan because they grew up about a mile from the stadium up in Green Bay. Oh, wow. I went to UW Oshkosh, so I know of UW Whitewater, played uh, college soccer against them and things. Okay. Well, that's nice to know. We've got a little bit of tie together. Now, you were born with achondroplasia, the most common type of short-limbed dwarfism. I noted that there are over 300 types of dwarfism, which I was totally unaware of. Could you go ahead and fill us in and our audience in more on dwarfism? Yes, absolutely. So believe it or not, uh, 80% of people with dwarfism are born into families with no history of dwarfism. So my parents are both average height, uh, meaning there's no history of dwarfism in their family or themselves. It actually was a mutation that was formed on one chromosome uh, when I was diagnosed at birth uh, that led to me having dwarfism. So achondroplasia is the most common type of dwarfism, but like you said, there are over 300 types of dwarfism. So some people don't even get diagnosed with their type of dwarfism until later in life because there may not be enough research on what exactly their type entails. Um, But we were fortunate that I was born into a population that there was the most amount of research, but when I was born back in 1984, there were just a few brochures. Uh, So even with the most common type of dwarfism Mm. back then, there wasn't enough information. So my parents had to work really hard to seek out any and every piece of information they could find until I was six months of age. And they finally found a doctor in Baltimore, Maryland. I grew up in the Boston area, but in Baltimore, Maryland, where he cares for people with dwarfism all around the world, people come from all around the world for appointments. And once they got the appointment with that doctor, they were able to learn more about what it meant to have a child with dwarfism. Yes, there could be complications. So one of the most common things 
with someone, especially someone with achondroplasia, is that we have an average height torso and shorter arms and legs. So average height means that when I'm sitting down next to my peers who don't have dwarfism, we could be at eye level when we're sitting down, but it's when I stand up that I'm shorter. And the qualification for someone with dwarfism is four feet, 10 inches or shorter. So I'm about four feet tall. And all of my organs, even though my torso seems to be average height, all of my organs are more compact. So something that's very common is spinal stenosis, where my spinal column is up against my spinal cord. And at some point, it could be pinching it, causing compression. And there's also uh, some complications with having narrow ear canals. So I've had tubes in and out of my ears. I had tonsils and adenoids removed to help with my breathing. And then I had leg surgery. I had bowed legs when I was really young, so they straightened out my legs so it wouldn't affect the alignment of the rest of my body. And when I was done growing, I had a bone put back in my legs to straighten them out. I say all of this because we go through a lot, and I can't lie that there are not challenges with, with being a person with dwarfism, but I think what most people with dwarfism want is that society just needs to accept us for who, I, who we are. We don't want people to feel bad for us, and we want to be given a chance to participate. And by following that model, parents may be a little less fearful when they find out that their child has dwarfism at birth. Everything you were just saying is why I contacted you, after, especially after I uh, saw the TEDx talk, and we're going to be referring to it later. Um, your honesty, your blunt honesty about things and your desire to help educate. Because I have to say, uh, I've been in education. My area was social studies and history. It wasn't science. But what you've presented there were so many things that I had no idea about. And I know that you carry this theme over in your speaking. Now, mentioned earlier about how many times that you've done some speaking. One of those, and I want you to, to expand upon it, please, Beck, is... Uh, your time in Kenya. Could you please tell us about that? Absolutely. So after college, I moved out to California and I was there for six and a half years. And then I moved home because I needed to figure out what was next. Kind of just, we can talk about some of that later, but I was home. I didn't have an agenda on really what was next with my career. I got a message from someone on Twitter from Kenya and he said, we're trying to start an organization for people with dwarfism and we want you to come speak. A week prior to receiving that message, I received an email from someone at like the First Baptist Church of London saying that they had this giant budget to fly me out to London and it ended up just being a total scam. I didn't <laughs> fall into it too far, but okay. I was hesitant because I got a message from someone from Kenya and I had just gotten that other message a week prior and I was like, is this real? So what I did is I told the person to call me hmm. to figure out if they were a legit person. They called me and they were serious about having me come to Kenya. To sp uh, it, it was a known fact that I was a public speaker by that hence, point in time. Hence the scam potential. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so they, they reached out and I said, I'm happy to come if you're able to find a sponsor and the funding. Mm -hmm. And also I need you in to invite like at least one other person from the little people organization or someone that I could travel with. So they reached out to two other people within the little people organization. They tried to get funding from a local bank and it kind of fell through like within a week prior to when we were set to go fly to Kenya. 
I was hesitant. I didn't know if the trip was going to happen. But the two people who were from the Little People organization had to back out because they were in jobs where they would have had to give enough notice to be able to take time off. They had kind of already asked for the time off, but now that it was uncertain whether or not we'd be able to go, they had to back out. So it was back to just me. And I was willing to wait till up to 24 hours before because I had nothing else planned on my agenda. I had the time blocked off. Luckily, there was a family in the Washington, D.C. area who was able to be that available as well. So once we got the call 24 hours before that the funding was back, I got on a plane to D.C., (laughs) met the family who was going in D.C., and flew to Kenya. It was an eight-hour trip from D.C. to Amsterdam and then Amsterdam to Nairobi. We- <laughs> I'm just going to interject. What, what were your first thoughts? You know, I have a feeling that's where you're going. I apologize. But you got off the plane and here we are in Kenya. The craziest thing is we got the car service that the senator of Nairobi uses. So the senator of Nairobi was the patron of the Little People organization that was forming Usually that would be like the head of the board of directors. And I thought it was fascinating that the little people who were forming this organization worked so hard to get the attention of the highest level of people in Kenya. And he had their back and he wanted to make sure that this event went on and was a success. So kind of how it came about quickly was that six months prior, it was the summertime, and the people who were trying to form the Little People Organization weren't thinking about the need to form an organization, but they were trying to fly from Kenya to Michigan for the World Dwarf Games, which happen every four years, similar to the Olympics, but all people with dwarfism. And the country of Kenya said, we can't support you because these people didn't have enough money to fly themselves there. So they were trying to get funding from the government. The government said, we can't support you to go take this trip and be in these games, even though it's something you really want to do. You need to have a formal organization in place. So in order to prevent that roadblock from happening in the future, when they wanted to travel for sporting events, they knew it was important for them to form this organization. And I think that's when they got the attention of the Mm. senator of Nairobi and even Mm. the president of Kenya, who got them to just do what they needed to do to make noise. So as soon as I got off the plane, we're being interviewed by local news (laughs) radio stations. Okay. And there's a a microphone right up against asking me (laughs) what my plans were for our time there. Every single day was booked with going to radio and TV and newspaper interviews to build awareness around the importance of this launch of this dwarfism organization. And it was fascinating because it made me realize as much as people may assume that there are struggles and there are struggles in countries like Kenya, there's a lot less between someone who really wants to get something accomplished in the highest level of government, if you're able to work hard and get people's attention. And they definitely got the attention of the entire country, even though we were just in Nairobi. Sometimes in life, you know, you stumble into something you had no idea it was going to end up turning out so good. Mm-hmm. And then we move forward from it. And, you know, it sounds like you probably had a, obviously you had a great experience, but it also probably catapulted you forward in speaking. Absolutely. Um, let's shift gears a little bit. 
I want to hear about Disability In. That's a group that you're organize, you're you're working with, and Disability In the I N is a funky way of saying inclusion, is it? Yes. So the organization I work for is called Disability In. I've been in the role that I am in for five years, and about a year and a half in to my role, the organization changed names. It was used. It used to be called the United States Business Leadership Network, and we do the same work that we do now, even more because there are more resources now. But we lost people at Hello, and people didn't know that it was a disability mm. inclusive organization. Okay. So the board of directors of the organization got together with a brand firm to figure out what the next name of the organization could be. And Disability In was what was voted on in advance of the conference that took place in July of 2018. And the reason that we wanted, we wanted to make sure the word disability was in the name of the organization because mm-hmm. nobody knew what we did. And we want to strengthen the work because everyone tries to bounce around it like ability, other. uh, It's not about your disability. It's about your ability. People dance around it in every way possible. Mm -hmm. And we want to strengthen the word so people will be less fearful of it. And then then the in part also ties into like international because the U.S. Business Leadership Network limited us to just doing our work in the U.S. Just so listeners know that uh, uh, on the website is going to be a link to Disability In so people can learn about it more. Now I want to get into a brunt of something, your TED Talk. The name of the TED Talk is uh, Disability is Not the Problem, Fear is the Problem. We'll hold off on talking about that. What I would like listeners to do right now is either go to the bottom of uh, Life's a Road Trip website. If you're on there, click on that link to go to Becky's uh, TED Talk or else go Google uh, Becky Kakula, K-E-K-U-L-A, Becky Kakula TEDx, T-E-D-X, and watch that video. It's about 15 minutes long. Uh, So please go ahead and do that. And We'll see you guys back here in a little bit. Maybe I should be playing a little bit of uh, music from Final Jeopardy here. I wish we could do that, but I'd be arrested for it. So, okay, welcome back. Folks may have found that video, the first half especially, shock factor. Uh, That's the way I took it. Becky's blunt with the things that she has to say, and I think we should all appreciate that. One of the things that really stood out to me was a, a quote from Becky. People with disabilities are viewed by society as defective. Becky, is is this triggered, this attitude triggered by the media? Where does that come from? (laughs) Yes, the media is not that great at Mm. the way that it tells stories about people with disabilities or the way that people without disabilities try to act as those with disabilities to get the story across. But also just, I think people assume the word disability means the worst case scenario. And even when I talk about the worst case scenario of someone who feels that they have no quality of life or ways to contribute to society, there's still probably a way for them to contribute to society and have Mm -hmm. a quality of life. But it's the narrative that society projects on the word. And then society assumes that the only way to act is to act in fear. Uh, I mean, those people that did take the 15 minutes to go watch that, are now coming back and have a a little bit different idea probably of how this works. Another one of the points that uh, I want to make is I hope everyone understood it. 
was when Becky says a physical, uh, excuse me, she's talking about the U.S. definition of a disability, which is a physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. When I heard you say that in the, the video, it was just shocking to me about how simplistic and negative the view is just to, okay, it's substantially limits. When you were making this, I mean, there must have been a lot of emotions going through your mind uh, in the creation and then the presentation of this. So could you, Becky, please talk a little bit about that aspect of the video? Yeah. So I was going to try to do it all on my own, try to come up with the story and just tell it how it is. And I knew that it wasn't enough. And I knew that I had the platform to get the message across in a stronger way. So I actually worked with a coach who helped walk me through a few versions of how I could tell the story, but really pull in the audience more. And it wasn't an easy transition because we definitely marked up my entire written speech that I had already done, but it was important. And it was important for me to take that perspective and make that change because I'm not a confrontational person. So it was hard for me to even get stern about the seriousness of the topic. But I think that's the only way that it's going to be able to come across and for audience to realize, oh, that is an issue. It really came across to me. I mean, you give a rip and you're not afraid. Maybe you're getting stronger at it too, but you're not afraid to be able to make statements. I think that that's important. You know, I really applaud you for taking that sort of a stance. And I think I just felt conflicted. Like, that's not who I am. I'm not going to do that. But then it made me stronger as a speaker. And I think I, I carry it with me still to stand up for what I believe in, in order with the notion that if I do it, it can help others. There you go that's what it really comes down to. And that's actually why we're doing this podcast too. Um, and that's the type of guests that I want to be bringing on to here is people that care and people have something to say. One of the facts that you presented, I, I think was just mind blowing is that there's, there are 1 billion, that's it with a B folks, 1 billion people with a disability in the world. Those with di- a disability create uh, the third largest market segment and spend around $1 trillion annually. That, if you think about it, really should have a bigger impact than I think what we're getting for our buck. Yes. (laughs) People with disabilities want to see themselves represented. So even when it comes to entertainment content, people with disabilities are going to go support something that's authentic and that they feel that they can connect to. And unfortunately, there aren't a lot of options So it may prevent people from even going out and consuming that content or paying those dollars towards important things. Well, an actor like Peter Dinklage in Game of Thrones, Tyrion Lannister, four Emmys, Golden Globe, Screen Actors Guild Award. I, I think that's great representation, but that's not nearly enough, but it has to start someplace. Uh, and I know, uh, I've seen Dinklage uh, likes to perform on stage as well. I mean, he's a phenomenal actor. I think that people like him are important to be able, and you said this at, at one point, I believe during the TEDx talk was about 
uh, normalization, being able to see in everyday life and to be able to present not anything abnormal, but just part of. And I think that's one of the, the points that you were making in the talk. I want to jump to something that's a little bit more, I don't know, pointed. Uh, you stated that every day when you leave home, you run into at least one person that reminds you, could you go into that phase of, and, and kind of revisit how you covered all of that in the uh, TEDx talk, please? So the pandemic makes it a little more challenging, but hmm. I guess beneficial to people who don't want to face society. But after college, I lived in Los Angeles, and then I also lived in New York City. So these are heavily populated cities. So when I go outside in public, people remind me that I'm different. I know that I'm different. <laughs> I don't need to be reminded that I'm different. Yeah. But there are kids who point, st stare, laugh. There are parents who pull their kids towards them so they avoid any sort of learning. It's mm. really they're taught to just avoid uncomfortable situations. There are parents who may encourage their child to go up and ask a question, which is preferred. I would love to be able to educate a child. I would not want to come across a parent who's pulling their child away to just avoid seeing someone who's different or interacting with someone who's different. It's a very isolating feeling. I think that society is used to pointing, staring, and laughing at people with dwarfism because that's how we're portrayed in the media. Mm. And they don't know us in any other way. The court jester. Yep. And they don't really know what to do with us. So mm. I think in uncomfortable situations, people are taught to just laugh or be uncomfortable. But it's in, in the uh, WTMJ interview, I was very intrigued when you said, I decide when I want to educate someone. I know what you mean by that. Uh, expand upon that a little bit. When do you decide and what do you mean by you when you want to educate someone? I was mentioning being in LA and New York, especially New York. I felt like I was in some environments where I could be in a very vulnerable situation where I could risk my own safety if I don't mm -hmm. pay attention to what is happening. There are some people who, even if you tell them a million times, that that's not the right terminology or that's not the way to approach someone, they're not going to change their minds in the way they act. And those are also the people who I felt like there could be potential danger if I talked back to them. Mm, okay. So it's those people who come up to me and ask a question that I'm willing to dig deeper in, talk to. Okay. Because they're already showing their willingness to learn. Okay. I took it as uh, different. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I appreciate that. And then it carries into um, the second part of the video. Now, another quote, I, I, I picked up a few different quotes from you. I, I just love some of the stuff that you have to say. The world doesn't adapt to us, but we adapt to it. I often talk about how people with disabilities are everyday problem solvers, and those problem solving skills can be brought to the workplace if people are given a chance to shine. And when I wake up in the morning, I am in a house that's not necessarily made for little people. We have a lot of step stools around our house. So my husband also has dwarfism. And we are constantly trying to reach the sink, 
cook on a stove, go to the bathroom, all things we can't really reach without a step stool. If that step stool didn't exist, we would face more challenges. Mm. So even when it comes to driving, I use pedal extensions for driving. I have to pray that those pedal extensions are on really tight mm-hmm. or it could be unsafe if the pedals get loose and fall off. And what do you do about, you know, I remember running in this because I have prosthetic hands and, and if I rented a, a car, well, they'll put a spinner knob on it. And I, I learned how to get around some things that I just take their spinner knob off and I throw on one that I design. So what do you guys do if you're elsewhere? Are you able to, to rent a vehicle? Are there pedal extensions you can request from Hertz Rent-A-Car, for example? I've heard different stories on how they may be available some places, but not others. The smartest thing to do is to buy an additional pair that you just have to be able to travel with. So it's the type of pedal extension that you know works for you. Mm -hmm. And there really are only a handful of manufacturers of pedal extensions. But we took a trip recently and that's what we did. But then the other thing you run into is you don't know what cars are available that you're going to rent. So you can try to make sure the pedals work, but you can't guarantee because sometimes the pedal on the car is so thin or so narrow that you can't get a good grip when you're attaching the extension. Mm. So one thing actually that has been beneficial, so the job that I have now is fully remote and the public speaking I do, I can be asked to go anywhere. And one thing that has allowed me to do that successfully is the option of ride share because I can just have someone pick me up and I don't have to worry about traveling with my pedal extensions, running a car that may or may not work for me. And I can just avoid that headache. But if you want to take a family trip, a long vacation, it may make more sense or maybe a more rural area may make more sense to try to rent a car, but you can't guarantee that you're going to find the same level of comfort in the car that, that you do in the car that you use every day, mm-hmm. that you've found a ways to adapt. I use some pillows behind my back and just have the proper setup. I'm hesitant to drive other cars because I just don't know how it'll be. Well, this gives us an opportunity to segue into something. I'm just going to throw out a word and I would like to hear your definition of it from your perspective. Okay. And that word is inclusion. Define it. Talk about it, please. Inclusion is important. I think when we are thinking of inclusion, sometimes we'll think that it's tied to the word diversity and belonging. When we think of diversity, a lot of people's minds think of ethnicity, gender, maybe LGBTQIA but disability is an afterthought. It's becoming a little bit more common. Um, I think in our society, we're hearing about it more and that's slow, but I mean, that's that's how things tend to come about and maybe uh, change can happen from that. Now we're going to take a U-turn and I want to talk about something really straightforward and let's see where you and I go with this. But discrimination, especially in the workplace, you had stated that, you sent out 1,000 resumes and attended 100 interviews before your first permanent job. Holy cow. What were some of your thoughts? Did you have ideas or feelings as you came out of some of those interviews where it was, oh crap, that's not happening? You know, I could just, were there, did you have any senses from how 
people responded to you during an interview and you knew that they looked at you as being lesser than, and you knew it was, you weren't getting that job anyway? Yes, <laughs> there were many instances. I remember just driving around, this was in Los Angeles. I have to admit that I was trying to break into a very competitive industry, working behind the scenes in the entertainment industry. But I had several internship experiences in college that were related to the entry-level jobs that I was applying to. My resume did not say that I had dwarfism, so that's why there was a shock factor when I mm -hmm. showed up to these interviews. But I truly believe that I was qualified to do the 100 jobs that I was asked to interview for. But the minute I walked in the door, I could tell by people's facial expressions, people shaking, not really knowing how to handle my presence. They still tried to go on with the interviews, but it did not feel genuine or authentic. There are also something that that's learned from that we pick up on, right? I've learned that I, I coach state level soccer and I'm not afraid to go up to the opposing coach before the match, to shake his hand. I can get a lot out of the guy just by shaking his hand because if he pulls back or something, I know that I've got him off a little bit and I'll take advantage of it. So you just mentioned about, you could tell there was something going on inside of these people that they didn't know how to handle themselves. Exactly. And what made me the most disappointed is that nobody gave me constructive feedback that allowed me to think otherwise. Maybe they were having a bad day. Maybe no, there was information weak. I didn't know. Exactly. I, I have no other way to think because if they couldn't even perform an interview without mm. making it awkward, people also assume that because of my short stature, I don't have the cognitive ability to keep up with conversations. So they assume that they would have to alter the interview or do things differently when even when it came to job accommodations. Once I got my first job, I was fearful of asking for any accommodations. And really all I needed was a step stool at my desk or a step stool at the sink to wash my hands. Hmm. Let me throw you, it just popped into my head. So those 100 interviews and, you know, you came across so many different types of people. Do you think the more, majority of those people were uh, male or female? Female. <laughs> really? I, I thought it was going to be male because the male ego is really a wicked thing. Wow. It's that possible surprises. that they reported to males, but I remember vividly uh, a lot of females. Wow. That's disappointing. I had no idea. Anytime I've had interviews, I'll, I'll, I'll quick tell you about one. So after I hit a wall, after I, I got sick, I lost my hands. I coached for five more years, had national, uh, national rankings and stuff, but I hit a mental wall and I had, I resigned my position. I, I went out East and went on a, um, a tour out there and had a couple of interviews and I came out of one interview and I stopped down the hallway after talking to the athletic director to get a drink of water. And I heard him say out loud to his secretary who was across the hall. Why did someone bring in a, some handicapped guy without hands to interview for this position? Holy crap. Um, that's why I'm thinking about the male side, because to me, they're always, gosh, I think every single time it's been a male that has put me down without saying anything. Okay. Um, second half of the, of the video, 
you're discussing the fear inside the non-disabled. And I, I applaud where you were going with this. A quote from you is, fear is a product of misunderstanding. And I think that really shows a good person. You are a good person for having that caring and that sense of understanding about their misunderstanding. So could you go ahead and talk about fear from those that are quote, non-disabled? People do not like being uncomfortable. People may also be fearful of the fact that they could acquire a disability at any point in their lives and be part of the population of people with disabilities. So the earlier you embrace it, the more inviting it can become. Mm. And I'm not <laughs> wishing on people to acquire a disability, but I'm also saying be mindful and aware that it's not the end of life, it's a way of life. And I think people assume that if they get close to disability, they're then identifying as such. Hmm. I always thought of it as them trying to come to grips with their own humanity and how they might be afraid that the same thing could happen to them. I like the way you put it too. I mean, there's different ways to look at things. Um, and I think it's just, it's tying into that fear, that fear of being uncomfortable. And it's, it's strange though. <laughs> So many people are afraid to even address the topic because they don't think it applies to them. I'll give an example, another example here. So last Friday, I was substituting in seventh graders uh, social studies. And I don't usually do junior high anymore because it's too squirrely for me. I just do high school. But the teacher is the parent of one of my players. So it's like, yeah, okay, I'll do it for you. But I started out each class with pulling up a chair and talking to the class saying, you guys have never met me before. Um, some of them have because they heard about me through soccer and the soccer programs here in central Wisconsin, but it was just, let's talk about this. And I gave him my two minute spiel on what happened to me with group A strep with necrotizing fasciitis, the media likes to call it the uh, flesh eating disease. And we'd go in and it would be, okay, what questions might you, and all five classes, gosh, 20, 25 minutes worth of discussion. And I, because I had already read and was preparing for your interview, you were in the back of my head. I'm thinking, wow, this is going the way that Becky tries to approach people. It's going the same route because these kids are open and we're getting something across. I'm educating and they're open to it. They're intrigued. Now you've spoken, I've seen some photographs of you speaking in front of little kids, you know, in, in the elementary schools. What's that like? How are those kids reactive to you and what you're talking about? I love it. I think hmm. it's so much fun speaking to the young kids. It's like, get them while they're young. Yep. Um, I have a strategy with different age groups because I don't want to bore them and have them walk away without uh, processing anything. So when it comes to the really young kids, I may read a book, a, a picture book that has to do with disability or dwarfism. And then I just allow them to ask questions, fire away. And at the really young age, they're taught to participate. So some kids may be raising their hand, not listening to any of the other questions that are asked. So there are a lot of repeat questions. But if I 
quote unquote normalize things. I say quote unquote because is normal really a thing? By <laughs> telling them what my everyday life is like and the activities I participated in when I was their age, they start to find similarities. So I'll talk to them about soccer or swimming, and then they'll tell me that they play one of those things or one of their siblings does. I'll talk about traveling and photography and different subjects that I liked, and they'll find more things that they want to talk about. And even if it has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, the fact that they're willing to talk in my presence mm. makes a big difference. Yes. Most definitely. And you could tell when they drop their guard, mm -hmm. uh, certain kids that are probably the future leaders of them that will be more prone to not be afraid to raise their hand and say, Hey, but it has a lot to do with how you made them feel calm enough and secure enough and comfortable enough to be able to ask you. Mm -hmm. So you got to pat yourself on the back sometimes. All right. So we're, we're getting close to wrapping up and I want to go into the TED talk again and talk about when you and your parents went to the geneticist and you kept passing sign after sign after sign. I think there were three different ones that referred to birth defects uh, rather than genetics. Yes. Um, was that one of these, how, how did your parents react to this? Because I think you were how old, 12 or so? No, this was actually a few days after my mom and I were discharged from the hospital after I was born. Oh, okay. So Sorry. I was I was just in a tiny state. <laughs> but my parents said that they didn't process anything that was said by the geneticists. So for mm. those of you who didn't get to see the video yet, what happened was my parents signed into the office of the geneticists where they were told to go after I was born at a different hospital. And when they got to the receptionist area, they were told to follow the signs that say birth defects, go in the elevator, hit the button for the floor that says birth defects. Then there'll be another sign that says birth defects. And after that third sign, their genetic counselor will be waiting for them. And they got really pissed <laughs> real fast, fired up, <laughs> you Did not process anything that I don't even know how long that meeting was. Yeah. But after the, kid, fact, <laughs> after the fact, they wrote a letter to the hospital and encouraged them to change the sign to genetics. And luckily they did because no parent should have to be told mm -hmm. that their child has birth defects by someone who's supposed to give them guidance on how to care for their child who may have some differences, but it still is not the end of the world. It seems to me that as soon as you said they were really pissed, that right there was, I mean, there you had no way of conceiving or con uh, conceptualizing any of that, but that attitude carried on with, we're going to have something to say about this. And mm -hmm. I think that's really cool. I want to, I want to make another one of your, your good quoting person. I continue to believe that despite what others may say, no goal or dream of mine is impossible. Bravo. Right there, I guess it does relate to your parents saying, or you saying that they were pissed off. It's the same attitude. You know, it's mm -hmm. don't mess around. I, I, I just, so many things that I came across are, oh, I'm going to pop out of this. I'm going to go jot down the note and I want to make sure I get the quote right and everything. So I ended up doing that so many times when I was watching yourself, uh, your stuff. All right. So I want to get into it and just asking it two last questions. What are you working on now? And that could be very broad based, not just at work, but anything else 
coming up, which also relates to my second question. What's next? Where are you at and where are you going and what else is happening? <laughs> so much. Uh, I am really hoping to gain the discipline to write a book in the near future. There you go. I, I want it to be called Just Call Me Becky because people get so caught up in the terminology and I want people to just see me for who I am and learn as they go. I am also really passionate about advocating even more in the schools for the kids to understand that it's okay to be different. So as much as I've been talking about it, I think there's more to do. There's schools in every town, city, state, country. Uh, So it's just figuring out where it makes sense to go. I think my goal would be to get at more audiences where they don't think they need diversity training or maybe there's nobody (laughs) with a disability that has identified in their community because we know that there are people with disabilities in every community. So I guess less of preaching to the choir and getting people to understand this is a greater issue than just Mm -hmm. advocating for those who are different to those who are different. Let's wrap with that. Now, one more thing. Now it's time to get really casual. Uh, I want to ask you five questions that I like to call the road trip roundup. Okay. So just we're done with the heavy stuff. Let's just see how you respond to these things. So talking about road tripping. Okay. All right. What's your go-to fast food when you're on a road trip? Chick-fil-A. Ah, oh, you really said that with a little bit of spice in there too. It's like, oh, Chick-fil-A got to hit it. (laughs) I just, I like the grilled chicken options. (laughs) But then I also know it's not open on Sundays and I know that people have different opinions and I really just go for the grilled chicken. Yeah, they've been uh, out there uh, uh, politically, haven't they, at times? Yeah. Um, Okay. Dream car for road trip. It could be something you've had, something you're, you guys are driving now or it's something it'd be damn that'd be nice to take a road trip in i think like a big suburban or gmc something big and spacious but it has to have the sideboards in order for me to safely climb up always thinking right always have to evaluate everything yeah which is that's part of it you know being a quote disabled person always have to be evaluating things so something doesn't get in your way so you like to have you want to drive in a boat. Yes. Yeah. Put it set sail. Okay. Here we go. Uh, last cassette or CD that played while you're on a road trip. Showing your age a little bit. I guess it depends on the, how we define road trip, but I was in the car for about a half hour the other day and we had uh, Will Smith, big Willie style on. Really? <laughs> okay. Okay. No, that, that definitely, if it feels like, Hey, you're, you're cruising someplace. If you're cranking some tunes, then let's call it a road trip. Yes. I always think that road tripping means we're cranking tunes. All right. Coke or Pepsi? Pepsi. Which just straight up Pepsi or any flavored like cherry? I do like cherry. Diet cherry Pepsi. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Now this can get heavy. I've been doing uh, a few different shows so far, and I, I really enjoy this last question. Favorite road trip memory? Expand as long as you want, lady. It's funny to call it a favorite road trip memory, but it's one that I, I guess, remember the most. So it's yeah. got to have an impact on my life. Yes. 
one year. So my parents, they did okay financially, but they knew that it was important for us to at least once a year go down to the doctor I had in Baltimore. So my dad sometimes would drive his car there and back in a day just for affordability, but to make sure that I could get to those appointments. Mm. And one of the trips, he was driving his car back and we were in Connecticut and the car broke down and it was in the middle of a snowstorm. And my dad and I were at the side of the highway. My dad put me up in a snowbank with hopes that someone would see us. <laughs> and it ended up being this guy who works for USPS who pulled over. But it's like not legal for them to pull over and bring people into their vehicle. But he saw me like mm. blending in with the snow <laughs> and knew that we were in need of help. So he ended up driving us to the nearest truck stop. And we had ended up having to get a hotel room and we stayed overnight. And apparently I was trying to beg my dad at the truck stop to get me a rhinestone pin that says, I love Jesus. <laughs> okay. I think I just liked that it had like sparkles. Yeah, I think he talked me out of it. A little but it definitely felt like one of those movies where you're one of those like holiday movies where you're stuck in a snowstorm, you have nowhere to go. Uh, so then we ended up getting the car towed back to Massachusetts. And then my dad and I rode in the tow truck that drove us from Connecticut back to Massachusetts. And that was, a, that must be fun as a kid. Yeah, it was an adventure. Big tow truck. Very cool. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. I mean, it might be something you haven't thought about for a while, but Right. I could just tell you were digging back in the memory banks. Going, oh yeah, I was in this. Yeah, marketing even at that age, you're going to be having no problems with uh, continuing your career, especially if you're going to be pumping a book once you get it printed. All right. Yeah. So um, I really thank you. Uh, let's stay on for a second here in, in a little bit. We're going to say goodbye to everybody, and we'll uh, you know hit the stop button. But I want to uh, take a few minutes to hang out with you a little bit here. Okay. Yes. Okay, thanks. Thanks for listening. Check out previous episodes with new ones dropping each Tuesday. If you don't see a synopsis of this show where you're listening, visit our website at lifesaroadtrip.podbean.com for more information on this week's guest. This is your host, Scott Martin, reminding you that life's a road trip.